Well, hello there, and welcome back to another episode of This Is Technology Ethics. In this episode, myself and Sven will be talking about the topic of moral agency and machines. I won't say too much more about it because we have a extended introduction and explanation of the concept of agency and the relevance of this question in our conversation. What I will say at the outset is that there are nine main recorded episodes in this series of podcasts uh, covering roughly the content of Sven's book, This is Technology Ethics. We are going to record a 10th episode which will be dedicated to questions and answers from the audience, from listeners. We've already received a few, but if you have any burning questions on technology ethics, now is your chance to reach out and uh, at least find out myself and Sven's opinion or perspective on those questions. So if you want to contact me via social media or email, my email address is relatively easily accessible online if you look for my university profile, University of Galway, John Danaher. And I'm sure you can do the same for Sven. And we will do our best to answer as many questions as possible. So without further ado, I'll hand over to the main conversation between myself and Sven on moral agency. As per usual, if you enjoy what you're listening to, you might consider rating or reviewing the podcast online or spreading the word about it in some way. And we appreciate everyone who has done so already to this point. Okay, so we are back uh, for another episode, and today we're going to be talking about um, moral agency and whether machines can ever be moral agents. Uh, I mean, to some extent, I guess this like revisits the territory that you covered in your previous book a lot, right? I mean, this was sort of the, one of the central themes of the first book you wrote, um, uh, which you'll remind me of the title of that. What was it? Humans and Robots? or Humans and Robots. Yeah. Yeah, it okay. wasn't actually my first book. I mean, it was my second, but the Sorry, first yes. book was based on my PhD thesis, and in a certain sense, it doesn't really count. So uh, that was my first book, uh, uh, you know, after my PhD. So yeah, humans and robots, ethics, agency, and anthropomorphism, and indeed, you know, agency was one of the words in the subtitle. And the big question was, can robots be agents of some co- sort? Uh, can they be moral agents in particular? And the idea was that uh, well. People do attribute agency to robots, but uh, uh, should they take the ec- extra step and, and think of them as a kind of moral agents that can make decisions? And so, uh, yeah, that was definitely a big theme of that book. Yeah. Okay. And so, like we, and I mean, the next episode we'll do will probably be on the topic of patience. So this is kind of like a a, a pair, the complementary pair of episodes here because we're talking about the concepts of agency and patience. And so, I mean, it's probably just worth going straight into um, concepts here and we can break it down on like what a, what is an agent and what is a moral agent and what it like, and then what does it actually mean to say that a machine can be a moral agent? Um, I mean, I can just like, this is my s- simple definition of it. And you, I th- you might disagree because I, I, I think maybe philosophers often have a richer conception of agency than I might have, let's say, but uh, I mean, I think of an agent in a fairly kind of basic sense as any entity that is in a sense sort of like capable of making decisions. I mean, I almost sort of think about it in terms of like the computer science paradigm of, oh, you know, it has able to sense the world in some set in some way, or it's able to acquire information about the world. It has some sort of like internal value function, right? That a way of like evaluating the information that it's receiving and some goals that it's trying to attain. 
and then it's able to execute a response or decision uh, to the information that it receives and act in the world in some ways. So kind of sensing, processing, interpreting information and acting in the world. That's how I think of an agent in that sort of simple sense. Yeah. So, I mean, if you, if you want to call that deciding, making decisions, I'm quite happy with it. I mean, if you think of making decisions as kind of stopping and thinking about it and uh, considering different alternatives and then considering reasons for and against alternatives or you know, what fits best with my values or goals and then acting on that basis, then perhaps you might want to say that, yeah, that's one kind of agent, but there could even be a simpler form of agent uh, that uh, does a lot of the things that you talked about. I mean, it uh, it behaves in a way that's uh, goal-directed and the agent reacts to the environment uh, in a way that sort of is responsive to its goals. Uh, I mean, if you call that making decisions, then yes, that would be a simple kind of agent. If you think that that's a sort of goal-directed behavior, that is a form of agency, but that doesn't yet uh, fit with it. It is not the ordinary idea of making a decision. Then you might say that, okay, there are even simpler agents than the ones that you described, namely ones that just behave in a goal-directed way in, uh, that is responsive to the environment without sort of stopping and to think about you know what decisions it should make and what actions it should take. But I, I suspect that uh, you were thinking of decisions here in a some, somewhat, um, I, I, well, I wouldn't say watered-down sense, but less uh, intellectualistic kind of sense than you know stopping to think about something. Yeah, so, I, so yeah, you're right. I, was, I wasn't thinking about it in an overly intellectual sense in, in the... In what I think is how agency is discussed oftentimes in philosophical literature, that it's something to do with like, um, you're somehow like representing reasons for action or something like this. Inter you're, you've got some sort of internal, well, number one, you probably have some like internal model of the world and how it works, but then you also have some sort of internal representation of reasons for acting in the world in a certain way. And that's the basis on which you decide. But I, I was thinking of it in a more, kind of, I don't know, primitive is the right word, but like, you know, a basic sense, you know, well, like when I was a high school student or a you know, second level student, we used to study biology and it was, I would think of some sort of like single cellular organisms like amoeba as having a kind of agency, right? Because they are, they're able to in some way like discriminate between stimuli in the world and they make what seem to be like kind of decisions in response to that. They decide to move in a certain way. Worms, I think of that as, a, as having a kind of agency. But then oh. I suppose we get up the next level, like what moral agency. Um, I suppose this is this is a little bit trickier. But I would say like when 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 the concept of moral agency is typically discussed in the philosophical literature, it is sort of this more intellectualistic sense of agency that is in mind. And in particular, it's like you know the ability to, I guess, uh, identify ethically relevant variables or features of, of the environment so things that are valuable or not valuable uh, or um, ethical reasons for action in the, in the sense of like you know things that are permissible impermissible obligatory forbidden um uh, new, you know uh, uh what's, what's what's the other uh, end of the spectrum super regulatory or something like this i mean not everyone has such a sophisticated sense of the of the moral world as that let's say but um yeah, it, it tends to be this more intellectualistic sense of agency, but also specifically that you're able to sort of categorize and respond to ethically salient features of your environment and represent moral reasons for action. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how do you, I mean, if you want to kind of chime in on how you think about moral agency then. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, there too, you can think of a whole 
a range of different kinds of moral agents so that uh, you as you might, might call them where on one of the end of the spectrum is the sort of the really reflective type of moral agent that does think about what it or he or she or they are doing and that sort of weighs up the moral reasons and then maybe discusses uh, their actions with other moral agents uh, may, uh, you know, and so on and so forth and you know, really consciously is, is doing all of those things. Uh, on the other end, you might have uh, an agent that is very much like what we discussed before. I mean, like not, maybe not the, the bacteria, but uh, a simple agent that's behaving in response to its environment. And, and here you can think at least in two ways. And so one would be that the agent is making decisions in the simple sense of performing actions that have a kind of moral impact uh, so that the, uh, the, this, this agent is maybe possibly harming other, uh, well, what we in the next episode are going to call moral patients, uh, that is to say, entities towards which you can act right, rightly or wrongly. Uh, so there's a kind of what some philosophers call a moral impact agent. So it's an agent acting in the world with moral impacts. That doesn't say anything about whether that agent is just kind of thinking about ethics or is responsive to moral considerations. Uh, but a slightly more advanced kind of agent would be one that does all of that, but somehow it is differentially responsive to morally relevant considerations, uh, perhaps by design. So you might have designed a technology to try to avoid, for example, harming humans. Uh, and that, again, you know, you can think about whether the technology actually represents in some way something as being a human, something as being an action that could harm them, and as, you know, as then responding to that representation, or that maybe operates in a way that's responsive to harm or avoid harm avoidance in a way that doesn't have to involve any kind of representation of something as a harm. Uh, so that, you know, th those are already different options of morally impactful agents. I mean, so I think uh, James Moore causes moral, moral impact agents. Uh, he then uh, has a spectrum that people discuss, and I discussed it in the book as well, where you know you, you go all the way to that, what he calls a full moral agent. This is what we talked about just a moment ago, an agent that thinks about it, that, that behaves like a, a thoughtful human being. Uh, and of course, not all human beings are like that. I mean, when we are small, we maybe don't think in moral terms at all, at least not explicitly. We have to be maybe taught these concepts. Perhaps we have an innate ability to acquire these kinds of thoughts and concepts, but we don't start out in that way. At some point, you know, maybe, maybe our parents start to, you know, using moral language when they correct us in our behavior as we acquire the concepts, and that maybe that triggers this pre-existing capacity. But, uh, you know, during that learning process, we might be uh, what uh, Moore calls an implicit moral agent. And so we start to kind of become responsive to moral considerations without being able to think to ourselves that what I'm doing is right or wrong or feel guilty about it or ashamed about it. I mean, well, maybe we can feel guilt and shame or shame at least, uh, but we don't yet have a fully developed or articulated conception of ethics. Uh, and maybe in the next stage, we have a fully articulated conception of ethics uh, and we are responsive to more uh, you know, cons considerations, but maybe we're not doing all the things that an adult human is doing. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm a, some sort of artificial agent that doesn't have a human-like consciousness. Uh, maybe I, I have some sort of zombie-like way of representing the world. Let's just say I, I compute information and I act in the world and I am able to somehow classify information as morally relevant, but I don't have conscious awareness and feelings uh, that sort of help to uh, make me operate in the world. So that would be a less than what, well, what James Moore would call a less than a full moral agent, but uh, at least an ethically 
I think you call it an explicitly ethical agent uh, that is not yet a full ethical agent. So the idea is just that even within the range of moral agents, we can think of a quite a range of different sorts of agents, anything from agents that act in ways that have moral impacts uh, on the one end of the spectrum to agents on the other end of the, of the spectrum who, who act with an awareness of ethics, uh, who maybe have moral emotions and have some sort of virtue and wisdom, etc., that guides their behavior. So yeah, I think we want, one should be careful not to think that either you are a full moral agent or not, and it's kind of an all, all or nothing issue. I mean, as we will see in our discussion, there are some people who say that that's how we should think about it, but I think I would go with the Morian, as in James Moore, uh, in his view, uh, uh, type of view that, you know, you should think of this as a kind of spectrum. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, I I think um, I agree with that, and I mean, I'll come back to that in a minute. In that, I I I think I have a slightly different way of categorizing or framing it than Moore has. But yeah, so I was just looking it up as you were talking. So Moore has the four grades of 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 ethical agency in machines, and that's what his discussion is. So, I mean, I think if I remember correctly, this is a paper that he wrote back in like two thousand six, sort of that range, sort of uh, before two thousand ten, anyway. Let's say, um, and he had an example of like an ATM machine or an ATM, uh, you know, automatic teller machine um, having a kind of like ethical impact insofar as, you know, it in a sense, it makes decisions about whether you are entitled to money or not. And um, it has to kind of accurately represent how much money you have in your account and whether you have the authority to take the, the money out and give it to you or not and that kind of thing. So it, it like in some sense, it is responding to or acting in a way that is in conformity with human rules on kind of property and ownership right but it you know in no sense is it well we we, we presume in no sense does it kind of internally represent oh yes sven is entitled is morally entitled to this sum of money or something like this or morally legally entitled to it it's just um whatever categorization system it has internally if it, we can even speak about an internal categorization system here is very simplistic, right? It's it's not um, an intellectualized kind of uh, moral agency. So, I mean, I think I think he would describe that as kind of an ethical impact agent, and that it, you know the effects of the machine in the world have some kind of ethical impact, but it's not um, an ethical agent. And then he talks about implicit agency, explicit agency, and full agency. Um, I do. I want to just talk a little bit about the distinction between implicit and explicit agency because I do think that is a useful way of framing it I'm, like i'm not sure, so sure about his other sort of two ends of the spectrum of like ethical impact and full ethical agent because i particularly the latter seems like kind of a fuzzy concept or idea to me um but it, the implicit explicit distinction does seem useful and I, I mean one way of thinking about it is, uh, is you know there's lots of experiments done on um non-human primates and whether they have any kind of like moral sense or moral agency right so you know experiments from people like i guess michael tomasello um franz deval and so forth suggests that like you know chimpanzees that maybe have a kind of like moral framework right and maybe they have some sense of fairness in in the distribution of assets you can do experiments that seem to sort of tease this out it's not in any sense as sophisticated as the human one or is and it's not necessarily the equivalent to the human one they might have more maybe respect for dominance hierarchies than, than we do although we probably have that historically but there is some sort of sense of distributive justice or distributive fairness amongst 
uh, chimpanzees that they will react negatively if an experimenter like gives the other chimpanzee in the adjoining cage or enjoyed adjoining um, uh, kind of room more or less of something. Yeah, but it, yeah, the the classic one that uh, if, if people are not familiar with, it's, it's entertaining. Is that uh, you have a I think it's either a chimp or a bonobo. I mean, very similar kinds of uh, apes that uh, they have to perform a, a very simple task and they get uh, a reward. And so first they start off with giving one of them a great uh, piece of uh, cucumber, which you know for for a bonobo or a chimp that's an okay reward. I mean, they're willing to work for it. And then it says that the, the guy in the next cage uh, gets a grape for the same task. And grapes are ranked higher in terms of their priorities and what they like and what they want to get. And so uh, the one that only got a cucumber from doing exactly the same task gets enraged and starts like banging the, the glass and just screaming, uh, apparently behaving as if it finds that it's been unfairly treated and having to uh, get like a lesser reward for the same uh, job. And so... Uh, I'll let you continue just in a second, but one interesting question about the implicit versus explicit is whether we should understand this in terms of, uh, in, in terms of whether one has a higher order representation of something as being a certain way and therefore uh, being unfair, uh, a, a kind of linguistic tagging of a, a, a sort of a, okay, the state of affairs is that I get less, for this, uh, less of a reward for the same job. And that's unfair for that reason. If like the adding of that sort of labeling if that is what turns you into an explicit moral agent or whether one should understand it in a different way. I think that's an interesting question, but yeah, sorry, I, I jumped in there. There were Yeah, I mean, so this is sort of the point I'm getting at, is that, yeah. right, so if you look at those experiments and then if you read the kind of literature on it, uh, so the experimenters often talk about the behavior of the primates in moral terms and they morally code it, right? Uh, so they use those linguistic tags to kind of explain what's going on. But obviously, like we in some sense, we don't know whether the chimpanzees or the bonobos actually internally represent or understand the world in those moral terms, or they have those explicit moral codes. We, we're inferring it to some extent based on their behavior, and there are ways you can do this, like ingeniously through experiments, to kind of like work out maybe they have some sort of internal representation of of it. But we're, we don't know for sure. And so, like, it it could be in a sense that they are acting in a way that sort of conforms with what we perceive to be ethical norms of fairness and distribution. So, it, so in this sense, implicitly, they're acting on kind of ethical variables and in line with ethical principles. But because, it, and I mean, to some extent, ultimately, because they can't tell us, because they can't speak back to us that this is why I made this decision or whatever, they can't um, explain to us that or that there is this kind of internal representation or higher order representation of what they're how they're reacting how they're behaving in moralistic terms whereas humans can do that right? yeah and i think um if i may jump in again here I, yeah, there's yeah. an interesting uh, parallel to ai here because uh uh in some uh studies of machine learning people have found that uh sometimes two features are sort of co-occur uh, and we humans think that one of those two features is the one that's relevant say if you have to decide whether something is a polar bear or something like that uh, and you think you know you look at the polar bear and you look at its fur or whatever features and then decide that that's a polar bear so let's say that all pictures of polar bears also contain i don't know snow and penguins in the background or something like that and, you know so, i mean i don't remember if that's exactly how it works in that particular study but there are some studies where people have found that actually the ai system seems to have been picking up on those, those background features rather than features of the polar bear 
and thereby said that this is a picture of a polar bear. And you could imagine something similar in, a, in an ethical case that, uh, and maybe the, the monkeys that are like that, that they're picking up on some feature of the situation that maybe from a human perspective wouldn't be the morally relevant feature, but perhaps from a chimp or AI perspective, that's the one that sort of it sort of picks up on and on the basis of which it uses a certain category or produces a certain response that would, for the most part, perfectly fit with what a human would think as morally relevant or, or, or unfair or a polar bear or whatever it might be. So it's an interesting question whether if we have used AI machine learning to train moral systems, uh, AI systems to respond morally, have we produced an agent that works like a human moral agent or does it pick up some other feature that for whatever reason correlates with or coincides with what we think, think is morally relevant and you know, would that matter? So let, let's say that the AI system or the chimp always got it right and they reacted in the right, right way, but for some reason they're really reacting to some other feature that is sort of tangentially, incidentally related to the one that we find relevant. Uh, does that undermine the moral agency of that AI system or that chimp, so to speak, or would it be kind of an alternative type of moral agent? And this is something we might get back to, but I think it's interesting to think of, of the sort of comparison between, as you were saying, our human interpretation of what the, those monkeys are doing versus you know, our interpretations of what a possible AI system might, might be doing and the conditions under which we might think that one isn't really acting as a moral agent should, even if they behaviorally speaking would do the thing that would be uh, expected of a moral agent. Yeah, I mean, I can... Like my view is sort of, I mean, in in the hypothetical situation where you can't tell the difference between them, and there's no sort of context in which that difference emerges, then I, I would say it's a diff, it's a difference that doesn't matter in some sense. Um, I mean, well, we can get back to that because that's sort of my my view of it, which is largely a behavioristic one, sort of will in, in uh, affect most of the sort of subsequent material that's covered in your book. Um, so I'm sure I'll kind of repeat yeah, that over we'll and over again to, we'll yeah. get back to that but speaking of your views i i know that uh, you have a, a view about uh moral agents in machines that uh, is relevant maybe to our discussion and that i think is quite different than uh, some of the views from authors such as carissa valise and uh, ryan jenkins and some of these other people that we might talk about so maybe for the context it would be interesting to hear about what, what what you think about whether there can be moral agents that are machines or ai systems yeah, I mean, I, so I will say that, but I, I so I'll get into my view, but I just want to make two other yep. points very quickly. So one on your kind of machine learning example, that's a good one. I mean, there's a really famous story, by the way, like told about machine a machine learning system or a neural network that was trained to classify tanks, but uh, didn't actually classify tanks, but was instead responding to images of like, trees or shadows or something like this. Um, you can look this up. There's a guy called Gwern. Uh, that's his internet moniker, Gwern.net. He has a whole web page dedicated to that story. It's probably an urban legend, he says, but it's it's supposed to sort of reveal a problem, as you say, with neural networks that we never actually really know what they're doing. Like, it, we, we can train them and they can act in a certain way, but we actually never know what it is that they're responding to, really. And so we can get back to that as an issue with moral agency and machines and later on. But the other thing when I said about, um, you know, the framework for thinking about machine agency, so I, I do think the implicit-explicit distinction is a useful one, and I, I'm, the way I think of it is like implicit is sort of the system behaves in a way that conforms with our ethical norms or principles or in some ways conforms with ethical norms and principles. But we don't know whether it has the higher order representation of that. 
whereas the explicit agent does have that. That's sort of my way of of thinking about that distinction. But the other point I wanted to make is that I think there's like another sort of um, dimension along which you can categorize ethical agents, which I think is important and is not really taken up in this, which is has to do with the, the degree of autonomy that the the, the machine system has. Um, because if you think about like humans as moral agents, is that we we presume we have this explicit agency, but we also have a large degree of autonomy in the sense that we act we act across multiple different domains, multiple different decision-making contexts, and across all of them, we're expected to, or we normally are believed to have some kind of moral agency. But like, you can think about machines that like only do like one thing. They only make one kind of decision, but they're expected to do that, make that decision in a way that conforms with ethical norms and principles, and maybe to do it explicitly in, in some sense, right? But they would have very low autonomy are they a moral agent? Like I, I, I think they probably ha- are a moral agent in, in that specific domain, even though they have very limited autonomy. But again, when people talk about like a full ethical agent or a full moral agent, I think they often have in mind something with like a large degree of autonomy. So I think it's worth having in the background in your head that when we're talking about machine moral agents, we could have machines that have just you know, very limited domains of decision making. Like they just do one thing, like decide whether you get a loan or something like that, or decide whether you go to jail or not. But you still have to think about, maybe think about them in terms of whether they are doing that in a kind of moral way or are exercising moral agency in doing that. So anyway, in terms of like my my own view on this, and we'll talk about this in more detail as we go along, but like the in the philosophical debate, there tends to be like two major objections to the creation of um, machine moral agents, right? Or concerns about it. And they're basically like a possibility objection that in some sense, it's impossible to do this. And there are various ways of making that case. And then there's like a, a, a desirability question is, should we create machine moral agents? And I suppose like my view on the possibility question is that I like my conception or understanding of what a human being is, is that I, I think human beings are essentially sophisticated kinds of machines, right? And like I mean that in a somewhat technical sense, in that like I think that humans are kind of hierarchically ordered systems of mechanisms, right? I think of a cell as a mechanism. It can be explained in mechanistic terms. Like in in my mind, I haven't. The model I have is sort of the, the model of mechanistic explanations proposed by people like um, Carl Craver, right, or William Bechtel, that um, the cell is made up of like parts that perform, that interact in some way that perform a function. So you have those kind of three levels to, to me- the mechanisms, parts, relationships between the parts, causal relationships, and then functions that they perform. So individual cells have parts, relationships, functions, and they're all ordered together in a kind of hierarchical stack into a a human being. And we've been sort of created over a long period of time through a process of evolution as these sort of sophisticated machines, right? And um, we, we presume, have moral agency, right? And then there's a a point actually, maybe just to get back to when it comes to the implicit explicit thing, I think it's also worth bearing in mind that many times humans, as you you hinted at this, are implicit moral agents, right? That we do, 
as as children, we're probably implicit, we might be implicit moral agents, but even as adults, many of the times we're not actually like acting on sort of explicit representations of moral reasons for action. We we act in a more sort of intuitive, rapid fire way. And I mean, there are even moral psychologists like maybe Jonathan Haidt or something who would say that we never really act on a kind of for moral reasons. That's all post facto rationalization of our behavior. It's all sort of emotional responses to things. In some on some level, right? But but anyway, my, my point is that if it's the case that humans are machines and we're moral agents, then in some sense, I I don't understand the in principle or possibility type objection to the idea that we could create a machine that has moral agency. You know, like it might be very hard; it might take a very long time. But um, the idea that it's impossible doesn't make any sense to me. Whereas I think there are some people who have like a. Uh, I think a lot of the objections to the possibility of it rest on some sort of like mysticism or mystical thinking about humans. Um, you know, in the debate about like consciousness or philosophy of mind, you have the so-called like mysterians. So I think a lot of the possibility-based objections have a kind of implicit mysterianism within them, which we can get back to that in a moment. And then on the on the side of whether it's desirable to create machine moral agents, um, I suppose, like, again, if agency comes in degrees, as long as you're creating any sort of machine with some degree of autonomy, right, I think you probably want it, at the at an absolute minimum, you obviously don't want it to be an implicit moral agent, okay? You want it to act in a way that's in conformity with our moral principles. Um, and I think, like, as you, if you want to give it more and more autonomy, and there's, I think there's a reasonable debate to say whether you want to give machines more and more autonomy in decision making but i think like the more autonomy you load it up with the more you will want it to uh, kind of have a kind of moral agency so in a sense if we're if we're creating if we're creating machines that make decisions or across multiple domains i think it's sort of unavoidable or it would be imprudent not to sort of try to create them with a, a sense of moral agency now we, uh, we, we get back what what that means like and whether how practical it is but again, when it comes to the desirability question, I think as long as we're in the game of making machines with agency, they will have to be moral agents. So that's my view on that. Yeah. So, so I want to I want to comment on the first part about humans as machines, etc. But uh, uh, as you were speaking there towards the end, it just struck me that one thing that I didn't do in, in the book, but the one could have done that. Uh, would actually have fit, uh, fit nicely with the sort of thing I usually like to do is actually create a kind of matrix here. So you could have the view that it is not possible to create moral agents, uh, you know, artificial moral agents, and it's also not desirable. Or you could think, well, it's not possible, but it would actually be desirable. So it's unfortunate that we can't create moral agents. Or you might think it is possible, but it's not desirable. Or it is both possible and desirable. And so at, to create artificial moral agents. And I guess a lot of the authors that I'm discussing uh, in this chapter, I mean, and, and we could add you in one of those boxes as well, could be sort of put in these different boxes. And it seems to me that you are in the last box that I just specified, namely it's possible and desirable. Uh, now you also added something uh, towards the end of your remarks there that would add a further dimension. It's almost inevitable it seems like you were saying. And this is one of the things that some authors, uh, such as um, uh, Allen and, uh, let's say, Wallach, uh, Wendell Wallach and Colin Allen, they have this book that's called T 
teaching machines right and wrong from 2006 or eight or nine or something like that. Uh, and where they argue that actually, as you were saying, I mean, the more decisions we give over to machines, uh, the more it sort of becomes inevitable that they're going to have to make moral decisions. And so we better create them with capacities with, that would enable them, i.e. machines, to make good and correct moral decisions. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, can I just say, like, I don't yeah. I don't think it's inevitable that we'll do it because yeah. that sort of links back to a previous topic that we discussed about value alignment, about whether we will actually create machines that align with our values. So that that mightn't happen. But my point oh, is okay. that... Okay, yeah, no, I, was, I, I yeah. meant that you, you have to make machines that would have to make moral decisions, but then, of course, they could make poor moral decisions yes, yeah, and yeah. really bad and really unaligned ones. And so then, yeah, that's a good way of bringing it back. And so, so, so I was saying it's more, I'm more on the kind of, it's desirable that we should create them in a way that yeah. they make moral decisions that align with our sort of values. I don't know if we'll do that. Yeah, but, but it is possible for, according to you, but it's not inevitable that they would become good moral agents. And so maybe we, actually that's another distinction we should maybe introduce that, okay, you could have a moral agent that understands right and wrong, but tends to get it wrong and tends to not act on its, uh, have a sort of moral weakness of will so that maybe, uh, well, I mean, okay, so two options here. One, uh, a sort of moral agent with sort of inverted values that sort of judges what we think to be, that we think is right, right to be wrong and, and vice versa, or one that gets it right in, in its thinking, but then doesn't conform its behavior to it. Uh, or, you know, you can have these perverse cases where uh, that people talk about in the value alignment debate, where the machine does have the right values, but the means it takes to, to, to realize those values are going to be unethical. Uh, now, I wanted to just say something really quick about your idea about we are a kind of machines. And uh, if we are machines who can be moral agents, then other machines could be moral agents as well. Uh, now, you, you said that you think of us as being the product of evolution and uh, our moral capacities then presumably are also some sort of either selected for... Uh, adaptations or a kind of byproduct of that process now of course this brings up something that we might want to get to as as one of the responses to possible objections namely if you were to design an artificial moral agent how would you go about doing it and, and you know your point of view that you know we are a product of evolution might suggest that the best way to produce a, an artificial moral agent would be to try to start up some sort of evolutionary adaptation process whereby the machines, uh, and, and there, you know, there's something called evolutionary robotics, where robots are you know, evolving over time, uh, and there's also sort of um, uh, simulated evolution in, in computers, so to speak, that, you know, and that could then perhaps give instructions for the creation of machines. So this could be one way of thinking about what you're saying. I mean, so it wouldn't have to be the case that someone sat down and sort of built a moral robot or a moral AI system for, from the start, so to speak, that would be a moral agent. It could rather be that they create a, a scenario where the technology through machine learning for through some sort of evolutionary process would be likely to evolve some sort of moral sensitivity. That could be a way maybe of uh, following uh, your way of thinking that would maybe seem more realistic than the idea that we would be able to figure out how to build a moral agent from scratch, so to speak. Yeah, I'm, as, and as you say, that kind of goes into um, responses to the criticisms and like how you could overcome some of those criticisms. But I mean, let, maybe let's dive into some of the the criticisms. Yeah. Um, I, by the way, sorry, I just want to add one other point. By like when I say that uh, humans are machines, like I know that there are certain people out there, like to whom, like even saying that, 
is just like anathema and they think that's um incredibly misleading but i i i think that has to do with like th- their conception of what a machine is is something that's very simple yeah or uh, has simple less, parts. less value than a human yeah. has um, uh, to say something a machine is to say that it's a mere tool and maybe they have sort of Kantian inclinations. I mean, I, I do myself to say like, yeah, we should treat humans as ends and not as mere means. Uh, but uh, when you say that a, a human is a kind of machine, I, I read you as not making a value judgment uh, that we should treat humans like tools. It's rather that the, the mechanisms that are involved in our functioning, so to speak, can be analyzed or understood. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how you think about it. I mean, you could take a view that, you know, you could, understand humans in different ways you could understand humans through the humanities so to speak study literature and history etc or you can think about us in terms of what functions we have what mechanisms operate within us and that's the point of view from which you're saying that we are a kind of machine yeah in a sense i mean like like what i would say is that i think i think humans can be accounted for mechanistically in a, in, in some sort of in the sense of mechanistic explanations and i think of that i think of mechanisms as machines right and so that's the sort of analogy that i'm drawing out i mean i mean to put it another way this is a very kind of obvious point but like i i don't think that there's any sort of magical like soul i mean saying magical is pejorative so let's, let's eliminate that from what i said but you know i'm not i'm not a dualist i don't think there's like anything special or some special ingredient that humans have over and above the sort of arrangement of our parts, if you, if you put it that way. Like, I know that there are people writing in the sort of robot, riot, robot ethics literature um, who, I don't know, just like that seems to raise hackles for them. Like that, that a notion that humans are machines, they just think of that as being completely misguided or wrongheaded. Um, I mean, I think Abiba Birhan, who we might talk about in the next episode, uh, has that view um there's probably a couple of other people who have, have a similar view but i i suppose i just don't fully understand their view i mean abiba Berhan's view is sort of like more in cognitive science and um embodied agency and distributed agency but i i don't we can get into why i don't think that's a good objection to that mechanistic understanding of humans maybe in the, in the next episode but let's let's talk about objections to machine agency I mean, let, let's just talk about possibility objections first. You arrange them in a different sequence in the book, but let's just do it in terms of possibility objections. So you mentioned a couple of objections along this line. And I mean, maybe, um, yeah, I mean, the first one, which might be worth commenting on is um, this notion that morality is not codifiable. And so in order to create a, a machine moral agent, you'd need to be able to like codify morality into some you know, fully complete set of principles that can be encoded into the machine, but that's not possible. Yeah, actually, another way of putting this objection would be that morality is codifiable, but that even if you have the full list of moral principles, and so maybe some very clever moral philosopher could give you that, uh, that still doesn't determine exactly what one should do, because one has to that apply those principles to situations in a way that requires a capacity, the capacity of judgment, a capacity that some people think that we can't recreate in machines. Uh, so it's, I mean, I mean, you coming from a legal background in part, and so you, you can maybe say something about how it works in the law, but my understanding is that most legal systems don't specify down to the 
smallest detail what exactly one should do from a legal point of view, so to speak. There has to be judgments made and sometimes actually making judgments about particular situations creates a precedent. And then one can compare in the future, okay, what people done in the past. But very often one finds that some situation is new in some respect. And so there has to be a judgment about how to extend uh, you know, or how, how the new situation relates to past precedents and also how it relates to the existing laws. And, and that requires a capacity for judging uh, or creative thinking, so to speak, in terms of the law. A lot of people say that the same applies to ethics. So there might be a set of principles, but what it means to be a utility maximizer, what it means to treat human, humanity as an end in itself, what it means to live in accordance to the values of Confucian ethics or Ubuntu ethics or whatever, in a specific situation, that's not predetermined, so to speak, just from the principles themselves. You have to interpret uh, the, the principles and apply them uh, to the situation and use, use your capacity for judgment. And the people who make this uh, objection, they are skeptical about the idea of creating machines that have that particular capacity that lawyers or moral agents are, are thought to have. So, yeah, so I mean, I look at yeah in a legal sense, like you, yeah, you can't possibly create a fully complete legal system that covers every scenario. And I mean, in law, we often draw a distinction between so-called rules, which are reasonably precise, and standards, which are vaguer and allow for room for interpretation. And obviously, every, in a sense, every case raises a new scenario that you have to apply these rules or standards to. And there's always some kind of wiggle room or room for interpretation. And that, that seems to be a feature of human ethics as well, that we, we can certainly have general ethical principles or normative principles that seem all-encompassing. Like, you know, the, the, the foundational maximum principle of utilitarianism seems like it covers all possible scenarios, right? Or same with, uh, you know, Kantian ethics. But actually what it what they mean in context is very unclear and the idea is that we need the machine to actually have that, that clarity right that it, it needs to know precisely what it needs to do in the the given situation uh i suppose like two responses to that objection you might comment a bit on these as well number one is that actually in, there's a misguided conception of ethics here that ethics isn't this sort of codifiable set of rules uh so the, the presumption in this objection is that it is this codifiable, or this thing that is in principle codifiable and it needs to be codified, but actually maybe it isn't that at all. And I suppose the other objection, more in line with how you would actually create a machine moral agent, is that you don't need to codify everything in explicitly. Because in a sense, that I mean, this goes back to how do, how do humans learn what's moral, what's right or wrong? We don't kind of get an explicit set of principles that we necessarily implement in, in every scenario. Yeah, so you can have, uh, uh, and this goes back a little bit to what we talked about before, how would you create a moral agent? You can have some sort of machine learning bottom-up type of process whereby, uh, you know, you, maybe you give some general guide, guidelines and algorithms in the machine, but, but uh, it would also learn by learning by doing, so to speak, and maybe some sort of reinforcement learning would enable the, the, the technology to actually uh, get a very good sense, speaking metaphorically, perhaps uh, of what, how humans would react in all kinds of situations and would perform well by our standards. Now, uh, even if you go that way, I mean, th there is actually one further wrinkle here that I would like to add, which I, I personally take seriously. So I think that when we have these uh, situations where it's unclear from an ethical point of view what exactly you should do and you have to exercise judgment, uh, when a human then makes a decision, 
you could see him or her or them as taking responsibility for you know how they acted in that situation i mean it's a little bit like existentialists they sort of say that actually much of ethics is like this that there's no no pre-given rule but once you make a decision you sort of take responsibility and then you make yourself open to criticism etc uh even if you're not a full-on existentialist i think it makes sense to say that okay when when there is room for interpretation and you do make a decision then you you know you kind of say that okay that's where i stand uh this is my point of view i take responsibility so you you might have a worry that even if a machine could exercise a kind of capacity of judgment and, and interpret the situation and act in a certain way, perhaps what would be missing would be this extra thing of, and then also taking responsibility for that. And uh, so, I mean, I should maybe mention that, I mean, there are some people, and I think I mentioned, possibly mentioned this in a previous episode, like Luciana Flori, who think, yes, there are moral agents, uh, humans and also machines, but the difference is that we can take responsibility for our moral decisions Whereas artificial moral agents, they can make moral decisions, but they can't take responsibility for it. So I think that whole idea is relevant here to this codifiability issue that, uh, okay, so maybe when we interpret the situation and we make a judgment, we also take responsibility. And that could be the thing that someone might argue, for example, someone like Florida, the machines couldn't do. And so that would be a kind of a, uh, yeah, sort of remainder, whatever one would call it, uh, uh, that that would be missing in the machine case. I mean, but again, I should mention there that yeah, he's someone who's not a skeptic about the idea of moral agents, but rather a skeptic of about the idea of moral agents as sort of fully responsible for moral agents. But anyway, so that's the that's the first objection uh, to uh, the codifiability objections. The first objection to the idea of the possibility uh, of moral agents uh, and that are artificial moral agents. I mean, maybe maybe we should mention maybe one or two more as such objections to the possibility. I mean, one would be, and this is something that Carissa Valise argues for in an interesting paper. Uh, one or, uh, idea would be that one has to have emotions to be a moral agent, uh, to be a full moral agent. And so she actually thinks that there's no distinction that makes sense between explicit and full moral agents. You, you're either a full moral agent or not. And the thing that makes the difference is that whether you can have the kinds of emotions that would enable you to understand uh, for example, you know, the, the emotions of other people and uh, according to her and lots of other people uh, that, you know, whether something would create bad emotions in other people, whether, whether someone is suffering an unpleasant emotion and you could help them and you could do something about it. That's a big, big subset of all the ethical issues that we face in life. And if you lack the capacity to experience and, and thereby understand emotions, you just can't participate in that part of more life. Uh, being responsive to and having understanding for emotions. And so if uh, technologies cannot have emotions, cannot understand emotions, then that rules them out as possible moral agents. Yeah, I mean, so this is a very common objection. Um, and I mean, I think also is this, well, I can't actually remember her name. Um, Shark, you know, Sharky. Sharky and Sharky. Uh, Amanda Sharky. Yeah. Amanda Sharky, yeah. Sorry. So I don't know. I don't know if she is she Noel Sharky's wife or partner or something like this. I think uh, so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Noel Sharky is a reasonably well-known roboticist who does some sort of ethical stuff. But uh, Amanda Sharky has written a number of kind of papers about ro uh, robot ethics and things. But she she's written a paper called Can We Program or Train Robots to Be Good? Which makes a similar sort of objection to uh, Carissa Valise's uh, argument there about the kind of emotional response i don't i i, I mean i suppose this goes back to my kind of behavioristic 
conception of these things. But I don't, I don't get this objection in some sense because it's like, well, I mean, ultimately it comes down to like, how do you know whether the machine has emotions or not? And to me, it just seems like a, an epistemic puzzle as to. I mean, if it's if it, if it what it means to have an emotion is that you have some sort of internal feeling equivalent to like a, a qualia, like, a, you know, it, it feels wrong to me, it feels good or bad to me, if that's the idea of what an emotion is, then that is, to me, inscrutable, right? I, I, I couldn't possibly ever access an emotion or ever determine whether an entity has an emotion. All I can do is, you know, engage its responses to the world. And I mean, like, there are kinds of AI that we currently have that it seems to me have some kind of emotion, right? In that sense that, in a very basic sense of being able to evaluate or um, or, or a, a, assign some sort of valence or value to the inputs it receives or the uh, information that it, it presents to you, right? I mean, like in a, in a, in a simple sense, right? G, uh, something like GPT or ChatGPT, it has to be able to interpret what you're saying to it and figure out what's important and what you're saying to it. And also then provide information that is a valuable response to that. And in, in some way, it's sort of, it is coding the information with values. It's, a, it's So to me, that's kind of like, I guess this is a, a cognitive theory of emotions, right? But it's like, it seems to be um, evaluating information or, or uh, yeah, tagging information with values and that seems like a kind of emotion maybe it's not as rich and varied as the emotional life of human beings but it seems to be a start to me yeah i mean, I, I living it open whether or not the chat gpt has emotions i mean i would uh, insist on what i would call a sort of multi-aspect theory of emotion so what you just talked about i would say is one of the aspects of typical at least human emotions coding things uh, you know responding with a, a you know, certain valence uh, and also, you know, what you said before, I mean, the internal feeling, that's another aspect of emotions. Other things are things such as facial expressions uh, or, or other forms of signals that sort of signals to uh, other uh, agents, you know, that you're in a certain emotional states. Uh, patterns of behavior, patterns of thought, uh, motivations uh, changing. So if you're angry, you might, uh, you know, either want to like uh, retaliate or, you know, uh, you know, express your anger or whatever it might be. If you're happy, you might want to dance or, you know, if you're sad, you might want to cry, etc. So uh, plus, you know, if, you, if you're crying or angry, you might have tears in your eyes. You might, if you're angry, you might, you know, you might be blushing from anger, your face is red or if you're happy, you might also be blushing, but in a different way and so on. So there are lots of different aspects to emotions. And this actually goes back to the evolutionary way of thinking about humans as mechanisms of certain sorts that we talked about before. I mean, this is how people in evolutionary psychology tend to think about emotions. Then there are what uh, Randy Nessie and others call kind of specialized states with different components that are uh, selected for because they enable us to respond in coordinated ways to different kinds of recurring situations. And so... If you think about emotions in that way, you might think that, okay, so some of those emotions are going to, so some of those situations are going to be socialist situations that call for a kind of social response. And so some of the um, moral emotions are, you know, what we think of as sort of a, a kind of multi-aspect response to social situations where if you have certain kinds of moral emotions, you might be able to respond in an adaptive sort of way. And from that point of view, 
whether or not you have a subjective feeling may be relevant in some situations, but not in others. And so uh, even though we tend to care a lot about the subjective aspect of emotions in our day-to-day life, from the point of view of evolutionary thinking about you know, what makes us react in the right way, uh, it can sometimes be unclear what the exact role of the subjective aspect of the emotion is, whereas it can be much, uh, be much easier to explain why certain behavior patterns and certain thought patterns, etc., uh, certain types of uh, outward signs of emotion would be useful or adaptive. But this also, I think, uh, creates room for a response to uh, Carissa Felice's uh, idea, uh, in, uh, namely that, okay, so sure, for us humans, it's very important that how we're feeling, but emotions could indeed, as you say, have other aspects, and some of those aspects could be recreated in, in machines, in, in robots and AI systems that could enable them to at least partially respond in what are thought of us as are morally appropriate sort of ways. However, at the same time, uh, uh, it brings up another idea that's also relevant here, namely the idea of the doing the right thing for the right reason. And so some people insist that, when, it, uh, for example, Kantians, when it comes to ethics, it's not just a matter of acting or behaving, uh, you know, to talk about behaviorism in the, in the right way. It also has to be that one acts with the right motives, the right principles, the right reasons. And uh, some people who discuss uh, artificial moral agency, such as uh, Duncan Perfs and Ryan Jenkins and colleagues, they say to be a moral agent requires that you have the capacity to understand and respond to reasons, and and machines lack the capacity to, to understand and respond to reasons, and so therefore they cannot be moral agents. Uh, that, of course, immediately raises the question, well, what is it to understand and respond to reasons? And they basically say, uh, well, a little bit like Cameron Civilis, that it's a kind of conscious experience. Either it's a conscious experience of having certain beliefs and desires, and so thinking about reasons in a kind of Donald Davidson-inspired way, or it is a kind of distinctive type of a mental ex- state that cannot really re- be reduced to anything else. It's just the, the feeling or the sensation or the experience of seeing something as a reason. Uh, so t- the, the philosopher Tim Scanlon thinks that that's a kind of brute uh, or non-irreducible mental state and we have it and then some people say well machines they're not conscious and so by implication they cannot have that particular conscious state of experiencing something as a reason and if it's necessary to have that state in order to be a moral agent well that rules them out as being possible moral agents at least in the full sense of the the, the sense of the full moral agent so that's that's another uh, type of possibility consideration. I mean, I should maybe a really quick comment about that from my side. I think in the human case, uh, when we are responsive to reasons, uh, I would also make that distinction between cases in which we consciously think about it and we consciously attend to our reasons responsiveness on the one hand, and cases in which, for example, I mean, I, I recently drove a very long distance. You know, I've, I mean, I got here in one piece, so to speak. So that means that I was responding to all sorts of traffic-related reasons along the way. But did I consciously attend to the feeling of doing things for reasons, uh, you know, throughout that uh, two-day drive? Well, not really. I mean, some of the time it happens in a somewhat more automatic way. So there might be awareness in the sense of, you know, taking in information and responding to it. But the conscious experience of thinking to myself, ah, you know, what's going on here gives me a reason to you know, go to the right, to go to the left or to, to break or whatever. That may have happened a few times and maybe even many times throughout this long drive, but you know, not all the time. So I would say that, okay, 
perhaps it is important to be responsive to reason in order to be a moral agent, but I'm not sure that the only kind of responsiveness to reasons that could matter would be the, the explicitly subjectively rich conscious version of that. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the other thing as well is uh, just on that last point, there's a, there's sometimes like a paradox of, I think I, I actually wrote about this once in relation to AI, there's a paradox of automatization in human agency in that like oftentimes the mark of extreme competence in a field is that decision-making becomes sort of automatic for you that you actually, you don't consciously represent it or understand it. Like, you know, a surge, a re highly skilled surgeon performing surgery, it's quite possible that they're, they're not like consciously representing the reasons for each and every incision or move that they make. It's just become second nature to them and they're just reacting to the situation in front of them. And that's the mark of how competent and well-trained they are is that they're able to do this without all that explicit cognition or higher order reasoning, ironically. Um, and so, so there's an irony in the sense that the kinds of human agency that we often aspire to or value, that highly sort of competent, skilled mastery may be a kind of agency that doesn't involve explicit conscious representation of reasons for or against certain actions. Um, so I just want to sort of uh, highlight that in the background here. But if we uh, kind absolutely. of and that yeah. that is compatible with the idea that you are indeed responding to reasons, but you're doing it in a different kind of way, and you're doing it in that sort of almost automatic, uh, you know, not uh, well, I mean, not non-conscious is perhaps wrong, but uh, uh, not not explicitly attended to sense. But so you but you could say that you're still responding to reasons, and that's part of your skill that you're, be, you're able to do this in a kind of automatic way. Uh, but but yeah, I, I take your point that that's uh... yeah yeah. So but but I mean I do think this is relevant to the debate about whether machines yeah. can be moral agents and that so that that sort of highly skilled competent agency where, where it seems like autom automatized that's the language sometimes used rather yeah. than automated um, is is maybe a kind of like implicit implicit agency that and it, it, so it may be that there's a learning process that humans go through and you know uh, people like hubert dreyfus have kind of written about this in in the context of whether machines can have minds right but uh, like when you're learning to drive there's a phase you go through where it's all sort of consciously and explicitly represented that you know i have to push my feet in this way and i have to if you're driving like a manual car where you have to change the gears by yourself you know with the there's a whole sequence of motions that you have to learn and initially it's all you're hyper attentive to all of these things it's very difficult to do it because you have to try to coordinate all these mo movements and motions but as it becomes learned over time it becomes you become more skillful at it it becomes sort of at a yeah as you say it's not like it's not subconscious because you're if you're driving you're aware on some level but it's not like you're really you're not paying attention in the same way that you would have been when you were going through that initial learning phase. And it's, it's more, yeah, it's, it's more automatic. The responses that you're doing, it's, it's more, it's more simple and straightforward. And that seems to be true across, across multiple domains. And so I suppose that there's a question, right? About machines is that can they acquire that sort of highly skilled, competent, implicit agency without passing through a phase of explicit representation or learning of moral principles or reasons? Like, and so that might be one thing to think about in, in the context of whether it's possible to create machines with moral agency. So if you take all these criticisms on board, that machines will lack this 
internal conscious representation of these things, whilst could they still end up in the same place without needing to pass through this kind of learning route? Um, I suppose I, I tend to think that my views are twofold. I think I tend to think they probably could do it without that passing through that phase, but I'm also not sure that we can ever really know whether they've passed through that phase or not. And, and that's sort of maybe my my larger larger objection or concern about these. So so even like those views, like Valise's views, the Perv's view on reasons for action, or even like Scanlon's view. It all makes sense in the context of human action. Oh, yeah, we have this thing, this property, this experience, but I don't, I don't know if we can ever tell that machines don't have it. I know this is like a very simple, classic problem in philosophy, like the kind of problem of, of other minds. But I, it seems to me that I don't know how I feel about it, but like in in this debate, it seems to be that some people just have this very strong sense that we have this property that machines will either never have or it's extremely unlikely that they'll ever have it in the, maybe in the far distant future, but so far distant in the future that it's not even worth considering. Um, or there's people like me, I suppose, who are like, well, no, there's nothing really kind of different here. Or it's it's a matter of degree and it seems like we're on a path to uh, creating machines with these properties because we can never really tell for sure. Um, so yeah, I like when I've debated this, these topics with people over the years, I sort of come down to the view that these are like, in some sense, almost like faith positions that some people just say these things, these properties, this internal mental property is a thing that machines can never have. And then there's other people who kind of have the view that it's a thing that they can have. And it's difficult to find sort of common ground between those positions. I mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we are also going to talk about that maybe in the next episode, and maybe we can talk about it then uh, at some some greater length. And so maybe I'll make another comment, and let's let's return perhaps if that's okay with you to, to this particular con. I mean, I, I just maybe really quickly. I mean, yeah, I mean that it might be a matter of uh, you know, do you sort of is this part of your overall worldview or not? And uh, once once it is part of your worldview that humans have a kind of conscious experience. Uh, then you know you, it's a starting point for your reasoning, as opposed to something that you can you know reach as a conclusion from from some other starting points. It's more okay. This is one of the things that you, you know, you're operating with as a basic assumption, and then you interpret the rest of the world, including other people, on that basis. But but let's maybe let's maybe get back to that later. And the thing I wanted to mention uh, uh, maybe here that maybe will be actually will also perhaps be relevant in the next episode is the, the idea that instead of asking, could we create a machine that would learn uh, to be an ethical agent in the way that we are ethical agents, uh, will you, or should we even start, to, or should we even have that starting point? Should we try to create a, a, an ethical agent that's a human-like ethical agent? Instead of doing that, you could also say, well, look, there could be different kinds of ethical agents, uh, not just only in terms of that uh, you know, scale of, of levels of ethical agency uh, that James Moore talks about, but also there could be some ethical agents that never go via that conscious state of learning a skill that we, like we humans do. They, they only go directly to the fluent type of agency for, through some other kind of process, uh, or that they are able to operate, as you said, as ethical agents within certain domains, perhaps, but not within others, uh, so that maybe they can make uh, decisions in medical context and traffic context or whatever context, but not in other types of contexts, they could still be ethical agents, 
even if they're more domain specific and even if they learn ethical behavior in a different way and perhaps that's what we should be wanting i mean maybe we there's no need for human-like ethical agents given that we already have them in humans so if we need or want you know ai systems or other technology to be ethical agents perhaps it's but better if we try to create a different kind of ethical agent because then maybe they can complement us so to speak uh, there could be complementarity in terms of our our capacities, our skills and theirs, and perhaps reaching a kind of overall better outcome because we have two kinds or two or more kinds of ethical agents that could perhaps work together in some way. And, you know, why should we uh, have us as a standards uh, for machine ethical agents? That might be the wrong kind of thing to aim for. And so it might not matter that they can't be human-like ethical agents. They could perhaps be another kind of ethical agents that could actually serve us better than an attempt to create a human sort of like ethical agent. So that, that's that's another kind of response that would be, I think, uh, I mean, it wouldn't necessarily clash in any way with the kind of view that you take, but it would kind of maybe reach a similar conclusion from a different perspective, uh, leaving it open that there might be something that we can know about human consciousness and other people's consciousness, uh, but saying that, okay, well, in, in a machine, we might not need that, uh, because there could be an alternative kind of ethical agent that we could we could and maybe should bring about so uh actually speaking of should uh, this should, should here perhaps we should also say something about uh ideas about uh, you know maybe okay so maybe you can create an ethical agent but 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 you shouldn't because there are sort of desirability related uh, objections to the idea of uh, artificial moral agents so I mean, should, should we say something about that kind of uh, response to the whole project um yeah i mean let me just say two things about what, what yep. you've said very quickly uh, one is yeah look, we'll get back into the conversation about consciousness or sentience and all these things in machines when we do the next chapter my only point here is that some of these possibility objections seems to seem to rely upon similar kinds of claims about internal oh, yeah. sort of mental states that that's the, the point i wanted to raise uh yeah i think i think the point that you make on the standards of agency is a good one. So the, oftentimes, again, within this debate, there's the assumption that we're trying to create a human-like moral agent, but actually maybe human-likeness isn't really the appropriate standard. And to some extent, the aspiration behind the creation of certain kinds of robots or AI systems is that they will be better than humans. I mean, the, to some extent, the aspiration behind the creation of the self-driving car is that it would be safer. So it's actually like a more perfected moral agent in some sense, or is a more... It, it creates better moral outcomes, even if it's not like an explicit moral agent, let's say. And some people have made similar arguments about, you know, algorithms that are used in contexts that could be discriminatory, that they might be free of the biases of humans and that this is a, a positive thing. But anyway, that sort of is directly opposed to the view that we shouldn't do it. So yeah, maybe, uh, do you want to talk a bit about like uh, what the objection to doing it, like why, why we shouldn't, even if it's possible, why we shouldn't create yeah, uh, machine well, actually, agent. Before doing that, what you just said uh, reminded me of something that's worth mentioning, I think, in this context, namely that some people say that one of the reasons why we should try to create artificial moral agents is that they, we can understand ourselves better if we do so. But if we go the way uh, that we just talked about now, where we should aim for creating a different kind of moral agent, then in a certain sense, that particular motivation for creating artificial moral agents would, you know, would be blocked out because... We're, we would now be trying to create something that's different from us 
And if we're trying to create something that's different from us, there's no guarantee that that would enable us to understand ourselves better, as opposed to if we try to replicate ourselves, then that might indeed be a, a way of kind of gaining greater understanding ourselves. Of course, I mean, maybe someone could respond that you actually trying to yeah. create an alternative would be a way of understanding ourselves also, but uh, this seemed like a relevant consideration. Yeah, sorry, I, I actually want to say one thing about that as well, yeah, because um, yeah, people like Cass Sunstein and John, uh, I can't remember his, his name, what is his name, Kleinberg, um, you know, they've written this paper about discrimination and algorithms, and uh, one of their points in that paper is is that the value of creating algorithms in this sense is that it makes the moral trade-offs more explicit and that's an advantage to human agents so it's a problem when, when humans are making decisions that have discriminatory outcomes that we often do it on an implicit and non-explicit basis and we don't explicitly articulate all the reasons for our decisions and the trade-offs the moral trade-offs involved in what we're doing are not obvious whereas if you actually have to create a machine that does it those trade-offs have to become explicit and you have to like make a choice say oh yes we will favor this population over that population, whereas in in human decision making context, that's often fuzzier or, or unclear. So there's a clarity of decision making, particularly when it comes to trading off between different outcomes, that is an advantage to creating machines. Um, but so that seems like a, an area where the differences is actually valuable for our agency. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we and, and we might possibly actually circle back to the point when we think about this objection that I will now mention to the whole project of creating uh, artificial moral agents and this idea that, okay, so even if it is where it were possible, we shouldn't do it. And the reason being that uh, there are certain kinds of decisions that should be left in the hands of, or in the brains or whatever you want to call it, of humans, and that shouldn't be handed over to machines. Uh, I mean, we talked about uh, responsibility gaps in the last episode. And one way of introducing that idea is to say that as we hand over uh, certain tasks to machines, we are handing over what are actually important responsibilities uh, to machines, such as you know operating a heavy machinery or whatever, fighting wars, whatever it might be. Uh, which means that these machines would have to make decisions about, let's say, it's a self-driving car, it might have to decide to go left or right, uh, and those decisions may have uh, big moral impacts uh, that are really important. Namely, the, actually, the choice between going left or right on the road might be a choice of life and death. Uh, and so, you know, you might have a kind of trolley problem-like scenario that we discussed in one of the episodes, where if the machine goes right, there's one person there. If it goes left, there are five people there. And so, what should it do? And maybe if it's operating in an autonomous mode, it would have to make a moral decision and decide on which of these people should live and which should who should die. Some people say, hold on a second, that very idea is offensive uh, to uh, human dignity. Uh, we have given over the task of deciding who lives or dies to a machine, and that should never be done because, uh, you know, uh, if anyone, uh, and well, step one maybe we should try to avoid creating any situations where people make life and decisions but if they have to be made those kinds of decisions it should always be made by a responsible moral agent who can take your full responsibility for the, their decision uh that way even if you know you are have you know you're going to suffer some harm at the hands of some other person you're going to have i mean if you're dead you can't complain but your your relatives or your near and dear ones can maybe complain on your behalf so to speak or if you survive you can complain but if there's no one there except for a computer a machine then that is uh, seen by some uh, people discussing this idea as a kind of offense 
to our status as more being uh, human beings with dignity you know we should have a responsible agent at the other side of any decision about life and death and if we hand over uh, life and death decisions or other morally important decisions to machines then we're lacking that responsible agent and that is somehow a sort of categorical reason to just avoid giving over some certain decisions to machines even if it were possible yeah yeah and I mean, as you say that's actually an objection that you find it's it's within the responsibility gap literature but yeah like robert sparrow's paper on kind of killer robots and in, in a sense that's lurking behind his objection there is that in in the war for to meet the conditions of just war the decision to kill somebody has to be made by a responsible moral agent and other people have made it in the context of of self-driving cars that's a very sort of popular idea we sort of touched upon in the last episode i'm not sure i'm not sure i'm fully behind it in this i don't i guess i don't really know what's more dignified about being killed by a machine versus being killed by a human um but i mean as well i get i get maybe the idea that you want to have somebody to take responsibility for it and that that's a, a virtue or value if somebody's accountable for the, the decision um so that then gets into the debate about whether whether the machine can be responsible or whether the responsibility could be traced back to another agent. Um, do you have any kind of other sort of thoughts on that desirability type objection or response to it? Uh, well, I mean, I guess one thing that one might add as a complication here is that is, is this only about life and death decisions or could there also be other decisions where uh, we would prefer having a human making that decision uh, and then the issue might not be that it's an offense against human dignity, but it might just be that uh, within other parts of life, we just place a value on the fact that humans make certain decisions. And so uh, to, to maybe uh, jump ahead a little bit to a topic that we'll cover later, is that let's, let's say it's personal decisions. So within your uh, personal life, uh, uh, you know, if instead of having your friends or loved ones or family members decide certain things in terms of how you interact with each other, they outsource those decisions to some, you know, AI technology, then in a certain sense, you may feel that they don't take, they don't think that's worth their time to make decisions about how you interact with each other. You might feel that you're being devalued to some extent because they say, okay, let's have a machine make this decision. Uh, it's not worth their time to kind of, you know, take their time valuable time and may you know think about how to interact with you let's outsource that to technology so there you might think it's not necessarily your human dignity but rather your status as important within somebody's life that has been you know offended against so to speak so that that could be another kind of objection where you might think that you shouldn't have technologies making personal decisions just because it seems to devalue uh, some aspect of the relationship. I mean, that seems to me to be an interesting idea as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I sorry, I, I I think this is a I think this is a fair objection in certain contexts. Like, I think it would be wrong to um, automate certain decisions um, in interpersonal contexts. I mean, in, in the same way that I think it's wrong to outsource those decisions to other people. Yeah, to an so, advisor, so, it can yeah. be a human advisor. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, like, uh, I mean, let's say if I'm buying a a Valentine's card for my wife or something like that. Let's let's just use that example. Or and I don't buy it and I don't write the message in it. I or I out, I outsource that to somebody else or um, I get a machine to recommend it to me. I think there's something problematic about that because I think I think the value of the card in the context of the relationship is that 
to some extent, I've put the thought into it. I've decided what it says. Uh, it says something about the connection between us. And if I, if you take all that out of it, I think there is a problem. So, it, it, but this sort of go, maybe goes to how machines can sort of sever the link between people, or you know, create distance between people in an interpersonal context. And maybe that's it's not an objection per se to the machine having the moral agency. It's kind of it's sort of an objection to breaking that link between people. Right. Yeah, it's an objection to not doing it yourself, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, but but it's just this interesting it, to kind of it's a similar it's a, it is a similar idea yeah it, um we, we should probably wrap up I don't know if there's anything you want to say about uh, human machine sort of collaborations because you have you were saying that we shouldn't have human likeness as the standard and that we can think about uh, machines as maybe another kind of agent uh, that act in a complementary ways to human agency you do have a bit in in the chapter about human machine teams as being a way of thinking about it, and that can kind of overcome a lot of the objections to here. Do you, do you want to yeah, machine maybe, ethics? Do you want to say anything about that idea? Yeah, so maybe real quick. I mean, I actually think that that uh, type of thinking could overcome a lot of these problems. Uh, and so the idea, for, first of all, would just be that, well, actually, the idea of machines operating completely autonomously and actually humans com operating completely autonomously might be, I mean, a kind of an illusion, if you will. I mean, that's maybe exaggerating a little bit, but typically, we would do things with the help of machines uh, or we, you know, with the help of other people. And so for most of the things we do in life, we do them partly together with others and maybe partly with the help of certain technologies. And for most technologies that we can and do use, they require human inputs and uh, they don't do things on their own initiative, et cetera. So um, a, a much more realistic scenario is to think about humans and machines, you know, in a certain sense, maybe metaphorically forming a kind of team, and then that you know, human-machine team might make a moral decision, perform as a moral agent, in the same way that pairs or groups of humans can do things together and become a kind of group agent. Uh, and we talked, uh, I think, in the last episode a little bit about Christian List and his ideas about this, which I th think makes sense. Now, if you think in these terms that we actually should not really try to create independent moral agents, but rather machines that, as you say, could be a different kind of moral agent and that could collaborate with us to perform as moral agents, then actually now you have humans in the picture again. And so we could have some of those emotions and some of those conscious states that the machines couldn't have. And so we could maybe solve some of those worries about machine moral agency by saying that actually there are going to be humans involved and those humans are going to be able to have some of the emotions and some of the conscious states. And then second, uh, they are going to be able to also uh, you know, be, be the bearers of responsibility, at least in part, for some of these decisions that have to be made. And so uh, in a certain sense, it's not as if the machine is making decisions about life and death matters. It's rather that a human machine team or organization is making decisions and there are some agents involved who are responsible agents, namely the humans, whereas some of the other agents involved, the machine agents, are not fully responsible. So, uh, so I think I actually think that this way of thinking that we shouldn't really see machines and humans as sort of two exist uh, separately existing entities that do things separate from each other, but rather we form a kind of units or teams, can actually take care of a lot of these problems, especially if we think that the machine members of those human machine teams are not like other humans, but they're a different kind of agent uh, that could maybe have certain strengths that we lack, and then we would bring certain things to the 
to, to the to collaboration that they lack, such as consciousness, emotion, and maybe the capa capacity or capability to take responsibility. So uh, I don't know that that is something that completely should ease all the worries people might have about machine moral agency. But I actually think that a lot of the objections seem to uh, assume too much of a separation between humans and the machines we use. And that if we start thinking that we actually will collaborate with them, we could actually at least this is a lot of the worries. Yeah, I think I think what you say is plausible, but I suppose like like the, the objection to machine ethics, is, like I think it's probably worth like separating two two kinds of ethical objection to it. Like, so there's a question about value alignment, which, as I say, we we touched upon in an earlier episode, and you could obviously have legitimate concerns about whether machines are making decisions that are aligned with our values or recommending decisions that are aligned with our values. So there's a concern about that. But then I think the, the concern that we're discussing in this uh, chapter is a slightly more abstract or general concern that you, you, machines shouldn't be making these kinds of ethical decisions in the first place. So that, that scenario that you're imagining of collaborative agency overcomes that second objection potentially. But I guess like it does it, it does it largely because the machines are an input into a human decision-making process as opposed to the final arbiter or the final decision-maker, right? Because so what the, so the idea is that humans are adding the things that people are objecting to. They're adding the reasons, they're adding the emotions, they're adding the responsibility that would otherwise be absent if it was just a machine making the decision. Yeah, And, and so the machine is free then to kind of complement or augment human decision-making. Absolutely. And I think we should add that uh, this whole point of view makes more sense if you think of processes that happen over time, as opposed to decisions made at particular points in time. So it could very well be that uh, at a certain point during a, a process or a practice or activity, the computer or the AI system, the, the, the robot is acting and making a decision. And if you just look at that particular part of it, it might seem that we've given over a decision to a life and decision to like a robot or machine, and that might be bad. But if you kind of zoom out and look at that as part of some you know, practice or way of you know, doing things, then you would see also inputs from humans. And you would see this as a kind of more dynamic kind of situation where there are not just machine inputs, and they're not just human inputs, but uh, there are things that exist over time. And that this is actually one of the things that can make the people in question responsible for what's going on, namely that they participate in these practices and they, they reap the benefits and they maybe then should also accept uh, responsibility uh, you know, when, when things go wrong. So I think, uh, I think that's another thing so that you can do. You think both in terms of their machines and humans involved, they work as a team and they work over periods of time uh, where at different times there may be more machine input, maybe more human input, and that could... I mean, I, I think also should ease some of these worries. Yeah, I know that that's fair enough. That makes sense. That um, we should probably wrap up. The there's a I won't mention the name of it. There's another podcast that I listen to on occasion where one of the presenters is always lamenting the fact that their introductions go for too long, and they're always claiming that they'll cut them down in the next episode. And I feel like I, I've we've stumbled into a similar trap with this podcast, and that we're always saying we'll do shorter episodes, but we end up doing um. Ones that are slightly longer. But anyway, I think we've come to the conclusion of this episode. Uh, recommendations here. I I suppose look, I'll, I'll mention two recommendations from my perspective. Um, I do think Amanda Sharkey's article, which is Can We, let me just look up the name, 
can we program or train robots to be good is a good article because it's a few years old maybe it's slightly dated in that sense but i think it's a good sort of compendium of um number one she actually reviews some projects to create machine moral agents which are interesting but then kind of reviews some philosophical objections to that i think uh, another paper which i do like there's a few actually good ones that have come out recently but one i'll recommend is making moral machines by paul formosa and malcolm ryan which is in ai and society for 2021 and the subtitle is why we need artificial moral agents and you can probably imagine where this is going it's a a series of arguments for thinking that we do actually need to create artificial moral agents and this is i suppose similar to my own view and that paper is also conceived of as a largely a response to another paper by amy van winsberg and scott robbins which is reasons for not making artificial moral agents so it's, it's actually a good paper to read to get a sense of that debate between the van winsberg and robbins side which is very much opposed to this project and then the kind of this Formosa and Ryan view, which is more in favor of this project. So that's another good paper to read. Yeah, I, I guess I'll, uh, yeah, I agree. Those are great recommendations. I'll also recommend sort of one paper on each side, side of the issue. So uh, actually there's an article by uh, Michael Anderson and Susan Lee Anderson from 2006 or seven in the AI magazine that's called Machine Ethics, Creating an Ethical Intelligent Agent. It's one of the earliest papers setting out this whole idea for the whole project and then motivating why we, as they think, need and should be making AI artificial moral agents. It's, it's, it's an interesting part because it's written by a computer scientist, Michael Anderson, and a philosopher, Susan Lee Anderson. I think they're also husband and wife, the Andersons, as people sometimes call them. Uh, that's a very clear statement of why one might be interested in the idea of artificial moral agents. And I think they also, uh, you know, explains some of the, the strategies that one might use for creating such agents in a clear and interesting way. Uh, so that's the argument for, uh, you know, machine agency that a moral agency that I would recommend. And then I would just recommend also this article by Carissa Valise that I mentioned a couple of times and we've talked about. That's called Moral Zombies, Why Algorithms Are Not Moral Agents from 2020 or 21. Uh, 21, I think it is. Uh, I mean, that's uh, we've talked about the arguments in that a, a paper, but uh, it's it's uh, also a very clear paper. Carissa Valise, as we have said before, is a very uh, sort of clear and provocative writer. Uh, so, I mean, we talked about her book, Privacy is Power, in a previous episode. This paper shares some of those attributes in terms of the writing. It's forceful, it's uh, provocative, and at the same time, she makes interesting philosophical arguments. And so I think people might find that paper interesting. And then she talks about the idea of uh, AI agents as a kind of zombies. I mean, agents without minds, without consciousness. And she does that in a kind of colorful way that I think people would find interesting and enjoy. Yeah, no, that's a good paper Yeah, as well. Okay, so uh, let's leave it at that. And we can uh, pick up, I suppose, on the discussion of moral patiency next time around. Sounds good. Thanks a lot.